Welcome to our Wow at Work podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Dargan and Dillian Ashton. Today we are talking about motivation, what motivates us and what demotivates us and how we can get it wrong so often, especially at work. And what are the consequences for us and for the organization that we work in? And of course, what are those consequences for our breath as well? So how can we breathe better and motivate ourselves? Today we're recording between Ireland and Spain. So I'm looking at the sea and breathing this sea in front of me. Oh, I love that. That's a motivator in itself. But I know I am in Ireland and we are known for our grey skies and rain, but there's none of that here today. The sun is shining and um, lovely blue skies as I look out the window here as well. So yeah, it's pretty fantastic here at the moment as well for late September. We're, we're very lucky. And I think there is something very motivating in how the weather can be, as in, you know, how that really sort of gets us up during the day, kicks some serotonin into our body, makes us just feel that more sort of energetic. I think, um, yeah, the weather has a lot to play into it. You're very lucky to be in Spain because the weather is just so motivating. It is. But of course, the sunshine should always be within ourselves. But that's another topic for another day. Well, today we're going to talk about, you know, what drives us and why we sometimes get really motivated to do something. And other times we seem to feel sort of less excited, say, about executing a particular activity or a task. Like, This touches on what John Ellison talked about in our second episode. You talked about happy habits and how to be able to form them. Like motivation sometimes doesn't stay with us for very long. That's why when we go on diets and and other things that we try to drive ourselves, um, you know, to a a better experience of health or whatever it might be that we want to change in our lives, then after a few months that begins to dissipate quite quickly. But it doesn't take much for me to get excited about, say, something like playing frisbee, which is probably my favorite thing to do all the time. And I, I... I, this time of the year, I know it's coming towards the end of my time where I'm going to be able to play frisbee because when the weather changes and the wind gets higher, frisbee doesn't really work. But there's very little reason that I would not want to play frisbee. I love it because the way it makes me feel. So that's my motivation. That's what's going on. Not because of, well, I get health benefits from it too, I presume, but I do it because it just feels great. What do you love to do that doesn't uh, take much motivation for you to do? Well, two things. Yoga that I do every morning. And I know it sounds like, oh, God, that's too much work. But actually, I do it with um, the yoga and breath work type of flow. And um, the, the type of yoga that I do is hormonal yoga. I love it. And even if I haven't got enough time, I always sit on my mat, do my gratitude for the day and do yoga for 15 minutes. Um, the other thing that I love doing is rollerblading. And uh, for dance, of course, I also need the weather and I need the right type of roads. So I always bring my rollerblades everywhere where I go. And here in Spain, I can do it. So, yes, it really doesn't take much mo- much motivation from me to do. I remember going to roller discos back in when I was a teen, uh, not far from where I lived. Every Saturday for four hours, we would go roller uh, to a roller disco. Now, I was never at a skill level like some of the people that used to go around that rink. It wasn't an ice rink. It was just a roller dome that used to go around that. And they, they would go over the jumps and all that kind of stuff. Can you do, st- are you, you as competent? No, I don't go over jumps. I even, you know, no, I, I just, I just look after my, um, my bones too much, I think. So, but I do, I do just the relaxing type of rollerblading. Quite, I'm, I have, I'm actually quite proficient, but I try not to take many risks when I'm rollerblading, that is. Only because I want to be healthy all the time. But yes. But tell me, Stephen, because I know that you, you have so much experience in leading teams to do uh, motivation, going back to work. And uh, you're really a master. I saw you at work uh, leading these groups and motivating them to do their best work. But you also talked to me about extrinsic 
and intrinsic motivation. And um, I would love to know what the difference is between these two, please. Okay, so extrinsic and intrinsic motivation are the two different motivators. One extrinsic is an external motivator. Give me a bit of money and I might work a little bit faster. An intrinsic motivation is what drives me to play frisbee because there's something that goes on inside of my body that makes me feel really good that I want to play this more. Nobody's giving me a financial reward or giving me a gift or you know, giving me an incentive to want to play frisbee. I do it because something inherently is going on inside of me that makes me feel that sense of enjoyment. So that's intrinsic motivators. What, what, what's really interesting is how mixed up we have got between extrinsic and, and, and uh, external and internal motivators. So when we talk about the workplace, we pretty much think that in the workplace, the only motivators that we have are what we call external rewards. It's called carrot and stick. Okay, so, so the carrot is that if I pay you a financial reward, you're going to work much faster and much harder. And pretty much that was the way it was for long amounts, long periods of time in the workplace, because we worked in what we call manual jobs. We worked on production lines. And if I was the person on the production line that was adding a sort of a nut to a bolt and somebody was adding a widget next, I could work pretty fast at that if somebody told me I was going to get a financial incentive for, for doing that quicker. And I've looked at some of the experiments based around these motivations. And one of them is really, really interesting is that why would we do anything unless we were financially motivated to go and do it? Why would we do anything if there was no reward whatsoever? And I looked at some really uh, interesting experiments uh, through some of the readings that I've done. And one of them was back in 1949. There was a guy called Henry Harlow who used to do some experiments with chimps. And he did a really interesting experiment where he did a thing called the lock and pin uh, puzzle. So he placed the lock and pin puzzle inside a cage where there were chimps. And he wanted to see exactly what the chimps did when they were given the lock and pin puzzle. Would they, would they just discard it? Would they just leave it to the side? Or would they, would they look at it? And he discovered what they did was the chimps would pick it up and they would find a way to be able to use the pin to try and open up the lock. So something that those chimps were not getting a reward for it. There was no reward of, you know, extra food. There was no reward of a mate. There was no reward of extra play or anything like that. They were simply just given the, the lock and the pin and they had to decide what they wanted to do with it. And what they decided they wanted to do with it was try and work out how to do it. And when he had seen that happen, he would take the lock and the pin out and then he would bring it back in at various different stages and he would see what would happen then when they had it again immersed into the cage. And he discovered that the chimps would go and look at it again and try and work out how to do it even quicker. So because they weren't getting an outside reward, what was going on? Something internal must have been causing them to want to open up that pin and lock. And we hadn't seen that before. We had never seen that before because we always thought up to that point that everything that we would do needed to have an external reward for us to do it. That experiment was pretty much um, left to the sidelines and people didn't really see it. So Edward Deasy had seen Henry Harlow's um, um, 1949 chimp experiment and he wanted to take it up a level because it had sort of been hidden and, and it, not many people have spoken about it. And he so, said there's something else in there. Can we look and see how that affects humans, how humans' intrinsic motivation may be, may be uh, triggered? So he created this research where he got a thing called a Soma puzzle. So the Soma puzzles are a bit like sort of Tetris blocks. They're a bit like Lego blocks and they're a bit like little diagrams that are given to people where they have to work out how the diagram in the form of the Lego blocks and the Tetris blocks actually forms like a, a Rubik's Cube puzzle and they have to put it together. Okay, so he simply got two different groups of people. And on day one, he brought the two groups in and he offered them absolutely no reward whatsoever for, for solving the puzzle. He said, I just want to see how this this works out. So he brought the people in, he got them to sit down and work out a puzzle. Then he came back and he gave them a second puzzle, got them to work it out. And then he came back and he gave them a third puzzle. 
Now, what he had done in this experiment was he'd created a room where they were sitting, where they had magazines and they had newspapers from the time sitting in the room as well. And after the third puzzle he'd given them, he said, listen, to finish this experiment off, I have to go into a separate room where there's a mainframe computer. I have to input the data that I've collected from the first three puzzles that you've created. I have to input it into the computer and I have to come back and tell you what the fourth puzzle will look like. And they said, well, that's absolutely fine. You can do what you want while I'm gone, okay? There's magazines and newspapers there. You can chat among each other. And what he discovered is that when he left the room, there was no mainframe computer. There was just a two-way mirror. And he wanted to observe, what did they do once he had left the room? So he discovered that when he left the room, that people, he left, and he left the room for exactly eight minutes. So he left the room for exactly eight minutes every time. He discovered that for three and a half of those eight minutes, people picked up the puzzles and they began to look at them and they got a little bit excited about them, about maybe... I could work out what puzzle number four might be. So they had some sort of desire to mess around with the puzzles. And the rest of the time, they looked at magazines and spoke. On day number two, he changed the experiment. So he had, remember I told you he had two separate groups? One of the groups, he gave them a reward. He was going to give them the, roughly the equivalent of $7 per puzzle or so in, in today's standards. He was going to give them $7 per puzzle. So they're going to get a monetary reward for completing the puzzles, the three puzzles and the fourth puzzle. The other group, he was going to give them no reward whatsoever. And he discovered by doing that, that giving the people the rewards that in after the third puzzles had been completed and he left the room and pretended to put stuff into the computer and watched, observed for eight minutes, he discovered the group that got the financial reward spent up to five minutes on average messing around with the puzzle pieces, trying to solve how they worked. So we discovered there that the financial reward had motivated them to want to get excited about the puzzles. And the group that had got no reward, they spent exactly three and a half minutes like they did the day before, just messing around with the puzzles. So we could have stopped that experiment right there and then and said, that's your answer. Give people a financial reward and they will definitely work faster and better. The interesting thing about this experiment is he brought them in on day number three and he told the group that got the financial reward the day before, sorry, but we've run out of money. I can't give you any financial reward for doing the puzzles. We'll just do them as we did on day number one. And they discovered that when they got to the stage of the third puzzles were finished and he'd left the room and observed for eight minutes, he discovered that their motivation and drive to mess around with the puzzle pieces had dropped below where it had been on day one and it went down to two and a half minutes. So they were most demotivated than they were all week. The interesting thing about this was the group who had had no reward on day number one or day number two, they had no reward on day number three, but suddenly, for some reason, their intrinsic motivation rose and they spent longer than anyone else throughout the week working around with the puzzle pieces. It was over five minutes. So something internal had been triggered inside of them and something demotivated had happened inside of the other group. So money, what we've discovered, can be a really big demotivator when we come to what we call tasks that are cognitive. So this is why it's important. The workplace that we work in now is no, mo- no longer algorithmic. An algorithmic means we no longer sta- stand on production lines adding parts onto a process. That's gone. We have automation took care of all of that. We now work in fields of work where we try to find solutions for people. We try to be creative. We try to come up um, and and, and solve difficulties for customers and companies. That's a cognitive task. And what we've discovered is this, is that every time that we add a financial reward to a cognitive task, it corrupts its ability to be solved. I do this experiment with groups. 
And Carl Dunker did it back in the, the 1930s, where it's, it's called the candle experiment. When you take a candle and you take a box of thumbtacks and you take a box of matches and you have a table and a table is right beside a wall and you ask the people in the room to find a way to be able to attach that candle to the wall and light it so that none of the wax drips onto the table. So you're trying to imagine what this looks like at the moment. And people in the group will see a diagram of that. I showed them the candle, the box of thumbtacks, the box of matches, the table and the wall beside the table. And they've got to find a way to be able to attach that candle to the wall, light the candle so that the wax doesn't drip onto the table. And for certain people in the room, I hand them an envelope. And when I hand them an envelope, there's a financial reward inside the envelope. And I, what's written inside of the envelope when I asked them to open it up? I said, open that up, but don't tell anybody else in the room what you've just read. And it says on the envelope that if you can solve this puzzle quicker than anybody else in the room, you will receive this financial award. I'll give you this amount of money. It's usually about 20 euros or something like that that I offer them. Every single time I've done that experiment, every single time I've handed envelopes to people and given them the offer of a financial award for solving that problem quicker than anybody else, every single time they failed. They're usually two and a half times slower at solving that puzzle than anybody else. Because there's a process that goes on in the brain that corrupts our ability to be able to solve a cognitive task. We get muddled in that situation. And it goes even further, because I know I've gone on a lot about this, but I'm so, so interested in this because we have this idea that financial awards are going to help us be better at work. And we're discovering they're not. Tom Wichich does a really good experiment, another experiment I do, which is called the, uh, the marshmallow experiment. And I don't know if you, have you heard of this? No, I haven't. So this is what I do with, with teams. So I give them um, 20 pieces of spaghetti and I give them uh, a yard of string and I give them a yard of sticky tape and uh, usually masking tape. Um, and I give them one marshmallow. And this is their instructions. They have exactly 18 minutes to try and build the tallest structure that they can with the marshmallow sitting right on top of the spaghetti pieces. And it must be unaided by anything else. It couldn't, can't be supported by the ceiling. It can't be supported by the wall. And it can't be supported by anyone's hands. They've exactly 18 minutes to try and build the tallest structure in teams of three to four. And when I do that experiment, there's a lot of fun in the room. But there's a guy called Tom Wuchich who does this with teams. And one of the things that he did was, he, I think he took about 100 teams and he brought them into a room and he offered them a reward. The team that built the tallest structure would receive $10,000. All they had to do was build the tallest structure and they would gain $10,000 by doing that. With that group of about 100 teams in the room, not one single group managed to build a structure that was unsupported. So even if somebody had built a structure that was only three inches high, they would have won 10,000. But not one of the teams was able to do that because they were corrupted by the financial award. People talk about purpose in the workplace. Um, why do you think it's so important in this framework that we're talking about extrinsic reward or financial reward? Well, purpose is intrinsic. So when we have an alignment of purpose with the role that we're doing within the organisation, that connects with something. And what actually happens to us is we set off what we call it, there's a seeking system inside ourselves. So there's a guy called Dan Cable, Daniel Cable, who talked, who has a brilliant book called Alive at Work. And he, he talks about this, the importance of what actually goes on in this situation. And what actually happens is we're really good at wanting to explore. We're really good at wanting to find out the cause and effect of something. And that, you know, 
taking on a challenge, doing something that just stretches us beyond our comfort zones, beyond our growth zones, maybe touches on the panic zone ever so slightly. But we want to be able to, to do things that stretch ourselves. And most workplaces don't allow that to happen. How many times have you come to a workplace and you've started in a new role and you've told everybody you're so excited to be here and you've got all these great ideas about what you're going to do with the role and how you're going to change things and help change things and come up with all these ideas only for somebody within the workplace to say, actually, we won't be doing that around here. That's not the way we do things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. familiar. <laughs> yeah. Or there's all these rules and regulations that are sort of closing a door on you and telling you that you can't do this or you can't go down that avenue. And that's shutting off what we call the seek- seeking system. And the seeking system is, is, is really good for us because it gives us what we call sort of a, a dopamine drop inside when, when we get a chance to be able to do this. And in most workplaces, that's just not served by us. We're given a role and we're told what to do. So, we might be aligned to the sense of purpose that the organization has had. A really good example of that was, um, I don't know if you've heard of the book Bullshit Jobs by a guy called David Graeber. No, I haven't. No. So David Graeber wrote a brilliant book um, and sadly he passed away last year. He's an anthropologist which worked with the London School of Economics. And David had originally wrote a piece um, back in Strike magazine about 2013. And it was an article that he'd written about the fact that most of us have jobs in our lives or whatever our experiences of our job is that if our job didn't exist in the morning, the world would still turn and nothing would change, which meant we had no purpose whatsoever. Somebody had created this job for us. If we go back to 1930, there was a guy called John Maynard Keynes, and he was an economist. And John Maynard Keynes had said, by the year 2030, the likelihood is that most of us would only be working 15 hours a week. We're no closer to that. We've ended up in a world where we've got less time, more work, more roles, and nobody's got 15 hours a week to themselves. Nobody's got 15 hours a week to work. We've got all this work that we need to do. And what David Graeber had said is that what we've done is we've created all these jobs just to fill the gap and jobs that might necessarily be needed. It might be somebody that's delivering pizza at four in the morning just simply because we've created 24-hour shift patterns for for certain jobs because we need to buy or to make more iPhones or we might need to make more laptops or whatever it is that's been made in a Hoover factory or have a 24-hour ships in a pharmaceutical factory, whatever it might be. But we've created these jobs to service these people that are working 24-hour shifts that never would have been there before. And if you're serving pizza at 24 in the morning or delivering it that, you don't have a sense of you're part of something bigger. You feel you could be contributing in a different way. So what David talks in about his book, Bullshit Jobs, is there's huge amounts of people that have really no connection to the role that they do. So they're not being intrinsically motivated and they're not really being paid very well either. So they're not getting the external motivation. So they're feeling really sort of dead inside. And that's happening to a huge number of the workplace where there's no sense of purpose in the job that they do. There's no connection with that. There's no talk about that. Because we've got purpose in two levels. We've got purpose with a small P and a big P. There's a big P is, is where we change the world by the role that we're doing in the organization we work for. Or we can see with a small P is that we're, we're helping lives within our organization, our people's roles within the organization. You know, we're enhancing them by what we do. And that's what Dan Pink talks about in his, his book, When, is, is this the small P, the purpose with a small P. So we're either a big P or small P. The problem is we can't all be big P. We can't all be changing the world. But I think more than ever, we're beginning to look, look at that differently. Yes, yes. So there, there has to, we're talking about balance here. And we're talking about the balance of having the, the small P and the big P playing together in harmony and creating this purpose 
in the workplace and in our daily life. Interestingly, and of course, you have all this experience of, of dealing with workplaces where they need this infusion of motivation or more of the intrinsic motivation being fired up inside, hopefully, the, the whole organization. Really good example of that is that Daniel Cable would have done an experiment with a company called Wipro. And Wipro were a company that were based in India and they're a call center company. So they had thousands upon thousands of employees. And like when they used to do their induction sessions into the organization, it was usually about six or 700 people a day were being brought into the organization. What Wipro discovered was that they had a very low retention rate within the organization which meant that pretty much every 18 months they were replacing the workforce that they had with another workforce. So people were leaving. And they tried all sorts of things to be able to retain the workforce. They better pay, they got paid quite well. Different other things within communication tools that they thought might be better within the organisation. But they weren't seemingly working the way that Wipro wanted them to work. So Daniel M. Cable and his team, uh, they got together. And what they, just, they got to change the induction process within the organisation. And this is what they did. They took two different groups in. And the first group, they did the standard training that they would have done at any stage within the organization, an hour long about the rules and regulations within the organization and what the organization does. They did an extra hour talking about Wipro and the identity of the organization. They got to meet a star performer within the organization who spoke about, you know, how great it was to work within the organization. They answered some questions about their first impressions within the organization. And then they were given a branded sweatshirt, company sweatshirt, and they were sent on their way. Then there was a second group, right? And they were also given the standard training, but they were given an extra hour, not to talk about the company's identity, but their own identity. So the questions they were asked about, what are your unique skills that you bring to the organization? What makes you happy and leads to your happiest times and your best performance? And they were told to write this down, simply write this down, and then relay it back to everybody else in the group that you were being inducted with. Then they were given a branded sweatshirt, embroidered with their own name at the very end of this. So we're given a personal experience where they got to reflect and talk about what, what their unique strengths were, what makes them happy. And just by doing that, the retention rate in that group went up 32%, which is phenomenal. So they stayed longer, but 32% within the organization than others would have. And it's a really interesting ex experience. So what the experiment really was doing was it was touching the people that were inducted into the organization on a human level rather than just seeing them as coming forward on a, on a company level. So I suppose it's about alignment between the purpose and the objective of a business with the people making that organization. So basically align both purposes and objectives to, to increase the likelihood of this success in, in both the company and also the people making this company. You're absolutely right. Listen, the, roughly around 80% of the workforce, and it's probably could be even higher now, are, are disengaged, who would rather be anywhere else but in the working space. And us as humans, we're all very actively curious. We like to innovate. Like when we join organizations, I told you that, that we're sometimes met by a, a wall of rules, policies, regulations, they prevent this. So we want to be able to turn that part of the brain that sort of makes our employees, our people within our organization want to experiment and play. So really good organizations know how to do this. And it not only helps the organization, but it makes life for the employees more compelling in work. And that's what you want to be able to do. So how do we do this? We can do it in three ways. One is in self-expression. And self-expression happened in that induction process that I just talked to you about at Wipro. So you're sharing unique ideas, your perspective on the world. 
that's that's done and if we can introduce that in ways within within our organization every now and then when we sit down and we could talk about what's important to us the second thing that we can do is experimentation it's about pushing the boundaries of what we already understand sort of coming around playing around with new ideas and really good organizations are, are able to do this one of the first companies I came across that did this quite well was Atlassian, which is an Australian company, which they used to have this day where they'd have a whole 24 hours of experimentation, come up with an idea, and then you showcase it to the team the next day. And it could be on anything. And Google did something similar to that. They called it 20% time where they could spend um, one day a week working on a project. Once somehow you could just loop it back into what Google did as an organization. And I think at one stage, 50% of Google's um, profits came from those 20% time projects. I think Gmail would have come from that and there's adverts and other different types of things came from that process. So now you're setting off the seeking system inside of people. And the third thing we can do is we can personalize purpose. We have, as employees, we have a greater understanding of what we do and how that impacts on other people. Let me give you an example of this. In the University of Michigan, they did an experiment a number of years ago. I think it might have been Adam Grant did this experiment. But the, what the interesting thing about it was this, that inside the University of Michigan, they have a group of people who work in a call center. And what they do is they ring up donors for the scholarship fund that they have within the, within the university so they can allow certain people go to college that could never have afforded to go to college. So these people pick up the phone day in and day out. They ring up possible funders for these scholarship funds and possibly for most of the day they're met with lots of no's lots of people putting down the phone it's a difficult job working in a call center for anybody and specifically when you're asking the other people for money it can be even more difficult so what they simply did was this they gathered some of the people who had been on the scholarship fund okay who'd gone through the process of of university and they got them to to talk to the people who worked in the call center for roughly five and ten minutes, do a presentation on how it enhanced their life, how it changed their experience, because they never could have gone to a university without the help from the people that funded this and the scholarship fund being set up. And just by having that uh, talk, that presentation in front of the people who worked in the call centre, then the profits within the call centre went up 172% over the course of the next month. And engagement, which the amount of time that they spent talking to prospective donors on the phone went up 142%. That's incredible. And I remember talking to a pharmaceutical company a number of years ago, and they had invented um, a particular process around diabetes that I know because I have a family member that experiences diabetes. And I said, this really enhances their life. This is brilliant. What you need to do is you need to go out and you need to find the people that use this product and go, this is incredible how it's changed my life. And you need to get them to come back and then talk to the employees and tell them their story. Because in doing that, you're setting off this little seeking system, this little self, this sort of, this motivation, this little drive inside that that motivates the self-seeking system to go that further mile in work. You know, that motivation, that drive that becomes intrinsic. Another question in terms of um, how our population potentially has been transformed uh, over the last 18 months with COVID. What do you think? Have you experienced now the workforce having different motivators and how they express what they want from work from this last 18 months experience this is such a topical conversation isn't this is such a topical thing like i think people have began to realign what they really want from the world of work over the last 18 months do i want to be sitting in a car for an hour and a half or a train for an hour and a half heading to the workspace 
Um, and then doing my eight or nine hour day and then driving home for an hour and a half or sitting on that train for an hour and a half. And people have begun to reassess that and say, don't think that's what I want anymore. Do I want to have to sit in the same office surrounded by people for eight hours a day? And like, I, I talked about this quite a lot. Like Jason Fried from Basecamp talks about this, that world of work is just full of distractions and it's very difficult to get good, solid work done. So people are finding that just from working from remote experiences at home, many people have found that less distractions have allowed them to be more productive. So they've got more work done at home than they would have done in the office where people are tapping you on the shoulder and asking you to whatever, sign a line for the raffle or whatever, you know, or talk about the football or whatever it might be. And specifically in open plan offices, that can be really difficult. Let me give you a good example. I had this epiphany about, got over 12 years ago now. I sat down and I worked out the world of work for me. And I discovered that when I was driving back and forth to work, I worked out, first of all, that every year that I worked in a particular organization I worked for, that was roughly about 50, 50 odd miles from where I lived and including traffic, that I worked out that for every year I worked for another organization, I spent exactly 12 days, I think it was 12 and a half days multiplied by 24 hours driving back and forth to work. So that was completely equivalent to my two weeks holidays my two weeks vacation was used up because i'd sat in the car getting back and forth to work i took it up another level and i discovered this that over my whole working experience to the year that i retired from work i would have spent and it just worked out magically at this figure that i would have spent exactly 364 days of my life in the car multiplied by 24 hours traveling back and forth to work And that just became so stark when I realized that. And I said, do I want that to be my situation for the rest of my life? It just blew me away. So I said, no longer do I want to do that. That's why I work now as a... In, in a different sphere completely compared to what I did before. And I, I do let... I, 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 I travel on my own terms now. And um, But it just became really stark. And I think people are beginning to have those realizations and those wake-up calls uh, about what they want from the world of work. Do we want to work a five-hour working day? And I was only talking about this to somebody this morning. Like the four-day week is going to be something that is going to be a part of our life. And I think we might touch on it again at another podcast, but I certainly think that the four-day week is becoming more of a reality. They're doing, actually, you're sitting in Spain. They're doing experiments in Spain with the four-day week and the government behind it, which is really interesting. They've just done one in Iceland. I had at my Happy Work place conference ireland last year i had andrew barnes from the four-day work week talking to us about exactly what he did with his company perpetual guardian based around the four-day work week and by just doing the four-day work week getting paid for five doing five days productivity in four days just by cutting out certain things not duplicating certain amounts of work like they've seen employee engagement rise they've also seen productivity go up and stress and burnout and mental health issues have all been you know corrected um, by doing that so I think people are beginning to realise they want something different from work. That's absolutely normal. And I do just see it as like whatever normal needs, but I just absolutely see it as a byproduct of experiencing something different. People are starting to also see other ways of doing the same amount of valuable work, but also having a balance. It's all about balance and alignment, as we were talking earlier as well. So yes. I love the whole idea of motivation because when we spoke about it earlier being financial rewards, corrupt our ability to be able to... Like, I'll give you another example of this. Teresa Amable is a psychologist and she's done lots of really good stuff. And I saw one of her experiments where she took 23 artists and the artists just had to 
select 10 commissioned pieces of their artwork. And commissioned means that somebody asked them to draw this portrait of a dog, a person, a landscape or whatever it might be. And they did that. And then they, they selected 10 uncommissioned pieces and they got them to be judged by other artists and other curators. Okay. To look at them. And they didn't know which pieces were commissioned and which were uncommissioned. So they'd been paid for 10 of them and they hadn't been paid for the other 10. Every single one of those artists and curators looked at the uncommissioned pieces of work, the ones they hadn't been paid for, and said they were far more valuable and far better than the others. And they didn't know the difference. So it even corrupts our ability when we're given certain things to do when it comes to creative things like art. It corrupts our ability to be able to do that. It's just such an interesting field. And because we live in this this really sort of weird world of where we're giving financial awards all the time. Dan Arley is a really interesting behavioural um, psychologist in this field. And he's, I think I saw him years ago doing this, where he actually talked was it to one of the major banks in Britain just after the crash. And he said, I can tell you why you probably made really poor decisions over the last while. And this is based on the bonuses that you're providing and the pay that you're doing. And I think the head of the organization, the bank at the time said, no, I think we're okay with this. But Dan could have sat them down and talked about exactly why there was all these issues with, with this. Because he's done some great experiments. He's done some, some stuff in India. He's done some stuff in Cornell University as well um, around people's motivation when they're, they're given a cognitive task and money are as opposed to doing an algorithmic task and money and, and, and the differences in it. So there's some really interesting stuff. Yes, and, and I suppose that also touches on loyalty because, of course, we're talking about turnover stuff. I heard this morning on the radio that the NHS in England are struggling already and are said to struggle more with people, the turnover of people that are burned out by COVID and the long hours, but also by the motivation that they get out of how they've been or they seem to be valued. Let's see how this works. When you have a contract with an organisation, you've got a market norm. They pay you a wage and you turn up for work and you do eight hours a day, you do 40 hours a week, whatever. That's fine. And that relationship is based on that contract and that's the way you work. Social norms are different. Let me explain it. Take somebody out on a date, okay? So say a guy takes a girl out on a date, right? They have a date. The meal goes very well. And at the very end of it, he brings her home and um, at her garden gate or whatever, he was uh, expecting maybe uh, a peck on the cheek or something like that. And she says, uh, no, I've got to go in. And he says, oh, well, I'm after that, that dinner cost me 60, 60 euros. So suddenly he's gone from what we call a social norm, where it was going absolutely perfect and we were integrating on a social level into the market norm. So now she's looking at this from a financial side and said, that doesn't sit very well. We can't have a social and a market norm in the same space. So she's moved from the social interaction into a financial interaction and she doesn't like it. So that's the last date that that guy is going to have. Let me explain how this works again. Dan Arley actually did a really, well, it wasn't him, but he talks about this really good experiment where they, 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 they showed how this corrupts things. There was an Israeli daycare center for children. So an after school place where children came after school, the parents would pick them up at a certain time and they would bring them home. And what the school was discovering, the after school was discovering, was that a lot of the parents were arriving late to pick up the kids and they didn't quite know what to do to be able to stem that problem. So they decided to bring in some financial fines. So they brought in a small financial fine. I don't know exactly what the currency is in Israel, but this brought in a small financial fine that if you picked up your child late, you would have to pay this fine. And what actually happened was, what do you think happened? More parents thought it was potentially their right to pay for extra care instead of being, I, I don't know, I'm not sure really. 
No, you're absolutely right. And you would think that the financial, you know, penalty would cause the parents to go, oh, I don't have to pay that. But what actually happened was, normally we work off the social norm where the right thing to do is turn up early and pick up your child and bring them home. But the minute we put the penalty in place, the parents, well, well actually now you're paying for me to actually stay longer and work. Or I'm paying you so I can stay longer and work. So I'm going to stay longer and work. And they were turning up later to pick up their kids. So the financial reward was not giving the remedy that was expected. So the fine turned into a right instead of, now I have the right to leave my child longer because I'm paying instead of seeing it being seen as a fine, basically. Yes. So what actually happened was we moved from the social to the, to the market domain on that one. And what's interesting with this, even when they took away the fine, so they said, we're no longer going to do that penalty, you know, we'll return back to where we, where we were. The parents then at that stage they didn't revert back to the old practices. They didn't start to turn up early to pick their kids or turn up on time. They still stayed late. And what we've discovered is that it takes a longer while than we expect. It's not an immediate change where people revert back from the market norm to the social norm to pick up um, their children or, or to move back into that domain. It took even longer. So it was actually months before the parents went back to the social equivalent. Like, let me give you an example. Say, say in the workplace, say I gave you a bonus of 1,000 or I could send you on a holiday. What do you most likely say to me? I would say a holiday. You would say a holiday? Yes. Well, I wouldn't. Well, most people wouldn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the wrong Maybe answer, Liliana. I know. Oh, God. Well, right now, the way I feel that I need a holiday. But yeah, it's true. It would be nice to have a a uh, 1,000 as well. <laughs> well, well the, the reason why we usually say 1,000, because it's, it's, it's cold hard cash and we can get that cash and we could either buy a cheaper holiday than the company was going to give us and we could have some money left over to buy some really nice things that we might, you know, enjoy. So I've given you the cash, but what if I want you as an organisation to work late a week later? If you took the cash, we haven't built any social capital between each other. This has become a monetary, a market um, transaction between ourselves. So suddenly you probably would have been happy the week previous to work late in my organization with me just asking you. But now because we've brought in this financial reward, we've changed it from a social domain to a market domain. And you go, this is a financial transaction now between me and Stephen. So if you're asked to work late, you're going to basically say, what are you going to pay me for that now, Stephen? Even though the week before you would have quite happily worked later. So in turn, if you receive the gift, you're more likely to move towards the social domain. So even giving somebody a gift changes it. And then you begin to build social capital. You're more likely to do late work if it's a gift. So for organizations who are wondering, what do I do? Because I do want to reward my staff in some way. If you reward your staff with a gift, it doesn't have the same negative effect as it would if you would give a financial reward. It's really like the, the daycare centre in Israel is a really good example of that. Dan Arley has also done some really good experiments where he did something simple, where he was had a removal van outside a house. And as somebody was taking out a sofa or a couch out of it, they asked people, would they help them with the sofa or the couch? And most people would say, yes, of course I'll help you with the sofa or the couch. So everybody was quite happily on a social level to do that deed and that task. And then he brought something else into it. So he said, listen... Would you mind helping me move that, that sofa or couch out of the back of the truck? I'm going to give you $5. And the minute they brought the financial reward into it, people said, no, you're okay. And they walked on. 
So you've got to be careful that we don't corrupt the two between each other. And listen, it's happening a lot when it comes to um, the way companies try to motivate us to buy their products as well. If you listen to all the ads for banks and all the ads for, say, supermarket chains, whether it's Tesco's, whether it's anywhere, all of the music is trying to create this feeling of that we're your friend and we're your family. We're a rinky-dink, you know, this lovely little music with little bells and little sort of nice sounds and kazoos and all that kind of stuff. They're trying to come from that friendly, friendly experience. So they're going to try to create that social um, relationship between you and them. But the problem is this, the minute your bank suddenly is trying to create that feeling of social connection between you, the minute you default on your credit card payment, they're going to turn back into that market uh, domain and that market relationship is going to to be the thing that takes the forefront there and then you can never return back to the social experience that the bank has as well. So they're getting it wrong all the time. And again, that shows uh, the motivation between people and how, yes, how this market and social can get really complicated and, and, and can really um, come to complicate things if we don't manage them in the right, in the right way, particularly as um, looking at companies and uh, the synergy between the alignment of purpose, objective. How do we increase loyalty? How do we increase motivation? With Autonomy, Cornell University, they took 320 companies. And uh, with these companies, they looked at 50% of the companies granted autonomy to their to their workers, their employees within the organizations. 50% of them operated with a top-down direction within their organization. So they were the, the complete opposite. They discovered that the autonomous companies grew at four times the rate and had a third of the turnover of staff of the other organizations that had top-down direction. Like the best artists in the world have great autonomy. When you think about it, Banksy doesn't need to be told what to do. The great musical artists decide what they're going to write without the direction of the record company. So autonomy is really, really important, not in the work, not just in the workplace, but in our lives. Absolutely. Create loyalty, not just in the company, but with our own purpose in life. If you can create autonomy within inside of people, so self can, self-direction over what they do within the workplace, if you can fit people into their strengths, what they're really good at, put them into roles that align to those strengths, give them the autonomy to be able to direct themselves in any many ways. We call it freedom within guidelines. So give them the right tools, give them the right guidelines to be able to do their work and just let them off. People will amaze you at, at, at what they're able to do. Absolutely. I've learned so much today, Stephen. I'm so, yeah, so grateful for all your um, shares here. And this is your phrase, Stephen, but I'll say it today. Happy days. <laughs> Happy days. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We are so grateful to have you here. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Do not miss any further episodes. Please leave a five-star review. If you have enjoyed this episode, this will rank the podcast higher and allow us to reach much more people. To learn more about Breathwork and our offerings for companies, please visit breathenowhub.com and wakeup.ie. Looking forward to seeing you next time on Wow at Work.